Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The House by Frederick Brown. This is a story from 1960. It's been republished once. And I think it's a very interesting puzzle story, literary mystery that nobody has solved. And I wanted to share it with you, Eric. What did you think of it? I I thought it was uh, fascinating. Um, I hadn't thought of it as a puzzle story, although uh, the first time I read it after you uh, suggested it to me, I noticed that it reads a little bit like those old text-based video games. I walked into the house, I Very saw much, doors yeah. on the right, doors on the, you know, and then clues coming, lots of clues, and maybe that is a puzzle. Um, but, you know, the thing about a puzzle is um, a puzzle is different from a problem and that's different from a situation so a bad situation is uh for example um losing um a a sentimentally important object while you are on a transoceanic trip and there's just no way you're ever going to come back Mm -hmm. it's gone you just that's it you can never get your grandmother's engagement ring that's it's it's over um, that's a problem. That's a situation. A problem is a situation that you think you might be able to ameliorate. So, uh, gee, I'm not making enough money, but I wonder if I acquired this skill, could I get this better paying position? You know, so a problem is a situation, but it's one that you think you might be able to ameliorate. A puzzle is a problem of for which you believe there is a guaranteed solution. So when someone gives you a jigsaw puzzle, if it turns out that it's got three missing pieces or two pieces that just don't belong there, you get annoyed because that's not what's supposed to be with a puzzle. Now, if this is a puzzle story, then the question that arises for me is, why would I believe that it has a solution? And frankly, if if it's a puzzle story, I have come up with one and only one solution. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's a puzzle story. But it was published in Fantastic magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, Fantastic Science Fiction, although this doesn't feel like science fiction at all. Um, I can't help but think that there must be something fantastic about it. But the one solution I've come up with to this puzzle is one that isn't fantastic at all. So that makes me wonder. Mm-hmm. You, you know, could you, could you say how you see this story? It's a short story. Tell what you think happens in it, and then we can talk about, you know, does it have a solution, doesn't it have a solution? Sure. Uh, th- there is a house, It's uh, the titular house, uh, upon which the main character is on the doorstep. He looks over his shoulder, sees a... Uh, beautiful vista behind him and then enters the house inside there's a series of mysterious rooms and things in those rooms Um, he performs some strange actions there are other beings in the house and it makes no sense at the end of the story we're left not knowing 
what what happened or what's going on in this story. I, I it's a it's a complete mystery. Interesting. So I'll give you, if I may, I'll give you the solution that I come up with if it were a puzzle. There's sure. A, I believe there were an outcome. He looks over his shoulder. He says the first words are he hesitated, which you know means he stops between two things. He's drawn in more than one direction. He hesitated upon the porch. A porch is, uh, it's, it's a place of transition. Right? It's not just that he's at the door. He's, in fact, on a porch. He's occupying a place of transition before he goes into the door. He goes into the door, through the door into the house. <clears throat> uh, and then he hears the door click shut behind him. He turns around and sees that it has carven paneling, this sort of old-fashioned kind of uh, word carven paneling uh, you might find in 1860 not in 1960 um there's cobwebs everywhere and he sees two faint trails through the dust on the floor and we don't know what they are maybe they're like large caterpillars two snakes it's a forked tail we don't know what it is so it's beginning to look like a haunted house kind of story mm -hmm. he sees a door on the right it's only the first of a number of doors on the right and it says Semper Fidelis on it, which by 1960 would, of course, have reminded a lot of American readers of the Marine Corps because that's their motto. But mm -hmm. Semper Fidelis, in fact, is the state motto of a number of states. And it's the family motto of a number of families that go all the way back to the Middle Ages. So, hmm, we don't know how this thing is. He goes into the door. He's in a small room. And on the room, in the room, there's a portrait of Benjamin Franklin hung askew. Benjamin Franklin. Okay, so it's past the American Revolutionary period, but somehow, no, it, you know, it got knocked. Um, on the floor, there's a scimitar with red stains on the hilt. So maybe there was a fight in this room. Uh, and then there's green ooze. Now, the, the parts don't go together. No. He sees that there is, he goes across the hall into another room, much bigger room, and like the first room, and the, the back of the door when he entered the house, there's a blank wall. It looks like a theater, but the seats go right down to the front, and the front's a blank wall. There's no stage. Um, he finds a playbill, though, and it advertises prophylactic toothbrushes, mm -hmm. and frankly, although prophylactic means preventing disease or to keep clean in advance. Um, it could be the name of a toothbrush, but in 1960 America, when the thing is published, prophylactic has its uh, dominant meaning being a condom. That's weird. And then it also, the playbill has an advertisement for uh, building lots in the Sub Rosa <laughs> subdivision. It's some secret place to build. And what are you going to build in a subdivision? You build other houses, right? Uh, written on there is a name or a word, Garfinkel, which does not seem to go with Benjamin Franklin or Scimitar at all. He goes back into the hallway and he hears a Hawaiian guitar. Someone's playing a Hawaiian guitar and badly. Then he opens the door to another room and it says he peered within and saw only a decaying corpse hanging from the chandelier. 
and an odor curled itself about him, nauseating, blah, 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 blah. He sort of walks back out. Only a decaying corpse? <laughs> it's beginning to sound, I mean, to take that kind of an attitude and this hodgepodge of stuff that doesn't go together, it's beginning to sound like a dream landscape. Totally. Which, yeah. So then above the two, he goes up some stairs, he sees some winding trails, but the two trails now, which might have been caterpillars or whatever, converge at the third step, and then they vanish. And then there's a carven poster bed, that same word again. And he realizes that he's in a room he's seen before. Um, there's a woman's handwriting on something that he finds, a slip of paper, and it says Denver, 1909. Okay. But then we wouldn't have talked about subdivisions in those days. Um, and then in ink on the backside, handwriting of an algebraic, in a different handwriting, an algebraic equation. This sounds more and more like, you know, a dream, stuff that's put together. Then mm -hmm. he hears a man chanting in an unfamiliar tongue. But the word that keeps recurring is Ragnarok, which, of course, is the end of the world in Norse mythology. The voice sounded like his own voice, it said, but muffled by many things. And I can't help but think that the many things that have muffled his voice is the weight of all of these different clues. The, the simplest way to look upon it is to say um, these are pieces of his memory. He looks mm -hmm. at the next door and he sees that printed upon it on the upper panel in tidy letters of gold his own name. He stands in front of this. He goes into that room. And again, there's a click. Again, it locks. And it says he knew that he would never again, it would never open again. Yet he felt no fear with this realization. In this last room, it turns out that he's in his, a room in his father's house. It's the room in which he was born. And on his mother's sewing basket lay the March 1887 issue of Harper's Magazine. So we're going all the way back to this guy's birth, which presumably was years earlier. As he would have been 73 years old in 1960 if he were born in 1887. It says he thought tenderly of his wife who had mm -hmm. died many years ago. So he's got the whole span of his life. Now, if, if one supposes that he made a trip to Hawaii, he studied strange things, he, he was out west, uh, this is the proverbial, your whole life passes before you. The last paragraph, it was not until the ninth hour when half an inch of candle remained and darkness began to gather in the forest farther corners of the room and to creep closer that he screamed and beat and clawed at the door until his hands were a raw and bloody pulp. So if it's a puzzle story, it seems to me that the obvious solution is we're seeing through the consciousness of a man in a dreamlike state who, in fact, when he hesitates and looks behind him, sees life, he sees the world, but he knows he's got to leave. And as he composes himself and explores that choice, it turns out that not only has he entered a house, he's entered a house within the house. 
And then the room within the house within the house is the very room in which he was born and within which he remembers back all of his life through that of his own long marriage. And his wife had died many years earlier. And only when he realizes fully that the exploration of this is not as good as life itself, that he stops the the acceptance, the acquiescence, and turns to a final rage. And in that last hour, beats his hands metaphorically and claws against the door until they are a raw and bloody pulp. The, the answer to this is a puzzle, it seems to me, is that it's a, a look at someone at the moment of his death. In that sense, it's a very short version and much less social commentary of that great novella by Tolstoy, The Death of Ivan Illich, told entirely through the viewpoint of the man who's in the process of dying. That could be an answer to this as a puzzle. That would be a simple answer. But then it wouldn't be fantastic. Hmm. Well, it is. If it's a man at the moment of his death and he is having that that flash of, you know, this is your life. It, it, it's something that most people don't experience. And so it, it borders on the fantastic, but, uh, I, I've dashed myself against the rocks of this story many times over the year that I've been reading it. And it, it is that it is, it is precisely a story of a man sort of trapped in memory, maybe inside his own skull. The house is the skull. Um, and when he goes through the door, you know, there's no room. Uh, there's no there's no lock that can be opened. There's no key in the wall once he passes through. It's like the soul passing in, through into the mind or something like that. Uh, it is that, certainly. But... The March 1887 issue of Harper's Magazine, well, it's not the March 15th issue, right? It's So it's not really exactly his birthday, but I went and looked up that issue. and You, I you mean Frederick Brown's birthday? You mean Frederick Brown's birthday? No, I mean the, the character's birthday. Oh, I see. You mean we don't know the precise birthday. If that's his right. birth, it's, it's the month. Yeah, I see. Right. And we are tied into this being, you know, him being born because, you know, he's in there for nine hours. If nine is a special number, it's usually nine months. Um, it, it could be that the dust on the floor of not all the rooms, but some of the rooms is uh, poor memory. And that as we tour, as you say, you know, he's been to Hawaii he, he saw somebody hung, right? The sword is a symbol of combat. Um, he was in the Marines. And they carry something that's similar to a scimitar, right? Like it, it is all decodable in, in a certain sort of very, these are very specific jumbled uh, memories. But I just have a feeling that that's not enough. That if we had a way of, viewing this document it would unlock a a uh, treasure map sort of maybe an actual one to a geocache or something like that that <laughs> he, that frederick brown has used this story's publication 
to make an elaborate literary joke that nobody is interested enough in solving. And because it's because the story isn't that it's not a very good story is what I would say. Right. Is that if you read it as, as we were, um, as a, you know, it's the death of a man, uh, looking back over his life. Uh, why is the scimitar got green ooze on it? Did he fight aliens? Uh, as far as I can tell, between 1887 and and uh, 1960, there weren't a lot of aliens attacked with scimitars. Um, why is it Benjamin Franklin in that portrait, as opposed to uh, some other, you know, founding father? So uh, the the use of color in every paragraph is very distinctive. There's a black door. A red room, the green on the on the blade, the red on the handle. It happens again and again that color comes up, and it, it seems to me like if 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 uh, I had a computer program and the skills to program it, what I would do is okay, so let's knock out every fifth word and retell the story and see see if it makes more sense that way, or or only read every fifth word and see if it tells a different story because. The, the specifics of his experiences in these rooms is so weird that it, it, it feels like it's more than just a, um, a haunted house story, as many people have sort of thought of it. It is a haunted house, but it's not good enough to be a haunted house story. Well, I, I, let me offer some alternative readings. Um, I, I offered the puzzle reading because I thought if you want to treat it as a puzzle, we have to think there's a solution and, and there's the solution, um, or there's a solution and, but it's not a very fantastic solution. Another way to look at this story is as a satire of haunted house stories. Yes. All of these strange, unaccountable things that lead ultimately to the death of the, uh, protagonist, um, that's silly. They're just silly. And of yeah. course, Frederick Brown is well known for his satires. In fact, his most famous work, um, what mad universe is satiric. It's a satire of science fiction tropes. So it's not uh, much of a leap to suggest that maybe the fact that all these things don't go together, they're a real hodgepodge. It's meant to be a satire. Look how silly you guys are. It's a house. Oh, ho, ho, ho. come on. It's just a story. So that's another way to read it. But I think there is yet another way. Um, it may be, and that, by the way, this other way doesn't invalidate either of those first two ways. Um, but it may be that it is an example of a very, very, very rare story in America, but one that's actually pretty significant in West Africa. It's called a problem story. Let, let me see if I can make clear what this is. In in most stories that we find in the in the Western tradition, um, we get one of two kinds of endings. We either get an ending um, in which things are resolved, or we get an ending in which, <clears throat> excuse me, they are instructively unresolvable. Let me exemplify. In the Gift of the Magi, you know that famous O. Henry story where 
the young husband doesn't have enough money to give his wife a gift uh, at Christmas, but he goes and pawns his one wonderful possession, his watch. <clears throat> and I forget what he pawns. I'm sorry. And she has not enough money. And she goes and secretly sells her beautiful, wonderful hair and buys him a watch. And, and they go and it turns out that they've both given each other the most important gift because it was the richness of their desires to, to be generous to each other. So it's that surprise ending. They're each surprised by it. So there's a, a resolution. We understand the problem. They don't have enough money to express their love. They find a way to do it. And we <clears throat> are filled with this good feeling. <clears throat> Excuse me. At the end of Through the Looking Glass, Alice asks, was the king thinking of dreaming of me or was I dreaming of the king? And the last chapter is called Which Dreamed It? And in fact, we never find out. There is no way to find out. It is irresolvable, but it is instructively irresolvable. We, we realize that if you're looking at a set of parallel mirrors, there's no way to know the exact status of any of the images. And since everything in a fiction is an image, what does it mean to say that something is real or not in a book? That's an instructive irresolution that Lewis Carroll has given us. But in West Africa, they have something that can be called a problem tale, where the value of the story is measured not by whether or not, not only, I should say, by whether or not it is well told, and not by whether or not it has a good resolution or a good instructive irresolution, but rather whether or not this story leads to really good conversation. There's a, a fairly well-known book called The Palm Wine Drinker by Chino Achebe. Um, and in, which, in this book, uh, the main character is off to find the fellow who taps the palm wine for him. You've got, it's a big skill because if you tap too much, the tree dies. If you don't tap enough, then the fermenting sap will kill the tree. If you want to have a steady supply of palm wine, you need a good palm wine drinkard. Now, this guy's palm wine drinkard falls out of a palm tree and dies. And so our main character is following him off to Deadstown to see if he can bring him back to the world of the living. Uh, clearly, it's a fantasy. It's an episodic story. And I was reading it the very first time I read it, enjoying it. And he comes to one place where they say, you know, we have a problem. Somebody is being tried for the following and we need someone to judge it. And then they tell our protagonist the problem and he doesn't know the answer. And he says, you know, I'll try to think about the answer and let you know when I come back. And then he leaves the town. And then before he continues on his journey, he says to the reader, if you come up with an answer to this, send it to me, a general delivery, care of, and it gives a post office. Now, when I thought, saw this, oh, how the heck does this fit into the rest of the novel? I happened to have at that time a colleague who had been a missionary in, uh, in Nigeria. And I asked her, you know, here's this book by Chino Echebe. How does this fit? He's a famous writer. This doesn't, it doesn't fit. And she said, ah, but you don't understand. That episode is meant to be dwelt over by people who talk about the problem that's been posed. And their conversation about that problem 
is supposed to help them further understand what's going on in the book as a whole. And when they get done with that conversation, they go forward. So the aesthetic criterion by which that episode is judged is not how well it is written or how it's resolved, but whether or not it leads to really good conversation. There are a few works like that in the Western tradition. Maybe the most famous is The Lady or the Tiger, which is 1882, right? And in that story, um, the, the, the man who is confronted at the end with choosing either the door that will open his way to the tiger and he'll be killed or the door that will open the way to a woman whom he will have to marry, his choice is... Yeah, he doesn't know, but he looks up in the stands and the princess, who is the daughter of the king who sets up this arrangement and loves him, looks at him and signals with her eyes which way to go. Now, if he thinks that she would rather have him live, even if she can't have him, then she signaled the lady. But if she thinks, if I can't have him, I am not going to let him go through life married to someone else while I live without him. She signaled the tiger. And the end of the story says, which came, he opens the door and the narrator says, and so I leave it with all of you. Which came out of the open door, the lady or the tiger? And that's been a great story because it has been the source of endless conversations in, in school rooms, if nowhere else. And I would like to suggest to you that if we view this work by Frederick Brown, The House, not merely as a satire, not merely as a puzzle, which we can give a naturalistic ending to, well, he was at the point of death and then freaked out, or as a simple satire of the, uh, the tropes of the haunted house, but it is both of those things. But if those things combine to a problem story, the question is, what is the problem? And the problem, it seems to me, here is, and it fits with both of those first two things, to what extent is our fate, to what extent are we locked in entirely by the ways in which we view the world? Are they entirely, are these forces entirely irresistible? because of our memories and prior experiences? Or can we make other decisions? When we hesitate, do we have to go forward? Do we have to do things a certain way? Is our death in the world as a certain kind of person, whatever that may be, something in our control? Or have we been trapped into a world, an architecture made for us? That, I think, is actually a legitimate question, and we can use this story to spark that conversation. I think viewing the house as a problem tale um, actually makes it darn good. And mm. I would put as exhibit A the conversation it's having us follow mm -hmm. on our own reading. I, I like I like that you've... You've tied it back in my own mind to my days playing those Infocom games, the text adventures where you can choose to go left and choose to go right, and you can query what's in the room. But ultimately, it's scripted. 
this story is the story. You can make choices in it, but you can't rewrite the program. I think that's true. But viewing this as a problem tale, um, I think it's important for us to notice that that's true for whoever he is. He hesitated upon the porch. Mm -hmm. Uh, His life here is scripted, but he is an example of what happens when you face a house made of your own memories. And the larger question that comes out of the story is how much freedom do we have to, uh, to reshape that house, to build it differently, to choose whether and when to go or when to go into it. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is a little bit like your info text games, right? Cause mm-hmm. you can decide they're frustrating and, and, and put them aside, but they're constructed to be games um, that you play alone, as most short stories are in the Western tradition. This one, I think, is special. It's more like The Lady or the Tiger. It's actually constructed for you to want to knock your head against it with a friend. Yeah. Well, thanks for knocking with me. <laughs> but as we say, there's always more to say.